We're going to be going back into Ephesians this morning. Um, so I invite you to go ahead and go in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, as we're going to be taking a look at verses 15 to 23. And uh, we're calling this a powerhouse prayer, because that's exactly what kind of a prayer we're going to be examining this morning that Paul prays. Now, let me just, before we get into this week's message, let's just talk a little bit about last week, when Pastor Daniel did a great job giving us uh, the sermon dealing with setting a vision for this new year. And if you remember, he ended up at Joshua chapter 3, about verse 13, with Israel on one side of a flooding Jordan River. And they were given the option, the people of Israel were, either they could stay where they were or they could obey God and take a step of faith and step into this raging torrent of a river and trust God that God would, like what he did with the Red Sea a generation earlier, that God would stop the water and the people would cross on dry land, on an empty riverbed. That was their choice. Are they going to step out or are they going to stay put? Well, the rest of the story is they stepped out and God rewarded their faith. And that kind of brings us up as Pastor Daniel was talking in last week's message. Will we step out? Will we trust God this year to keep his promises? Now, at the end of that generation, after some 30 years of Israel under Joshua's leadership, conquering much of the land that the Lord had promised them, in Joshua chapter 21, verses 44 and 45, it says this. This is just a reminder that God is always faithful. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he swore to their ancestors. Not one of the enemies withstood them, not one of all of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. God is faithful. But if we're going to experience God's faithfulness, we got to become effective in prayer. We have to learn to be able to pray like the Apostle Paul prayed. So that's why we're taking a look at this prayer momentarily in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, just an example of the kind of praying Paul would do a little further into Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, this is what he says. Now to him, that's God, who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So how do we learn to pray like that? Well, by the way, nobody that I know of in my some 50 years of being a Christian, feels they really have a handle on prayer. We all struggle with prayer. And it's interesting, we all have some common struggles, and so I've listed three of them here, all right? First of all, one common struggle we have with prayer, we'll call that a lack of focus. Now you can see this in Matthew chapter 26, when the Lord 
takes his disciples with him, and he's going to be arrested very, very shortly, and he's going to the cross where he's going to bear all of our sin, and the Lord felt this terrible, terrible burden. And so he asked his disciples, especially Peter, James, and John, will you stay up with me and pray with me? As the Lord went off and began to pray, not my will, but your will be done, Lord, he comes back, and you know what Peter and the others were doing? He wakes him up. He tells Peter, could you not stay awake with me for one hour? That's a lack of focus. The Lord goes off to pray again, comes back, they're asleep again. As Matthew tells us, and he was one of them, their eyes were heavy. We've all been there, right? You know, it's just like, as we try to stay awake. That's a lack of focus. How many of us have been praying about something, and all of a sudden you start thinking about lunch? You start thinking about that playoff game that's going to be happening momentarily. And then you realize after 5, 10, 15, oh, man, I lost it. So then we try to come back again. That's a lack of focus. Doubt. Doubt can be another problem with praying. James tells us in chapter 1 of his little book, verses 5 through 8, he says, if any of us lacks wisdom, we need to ask God and he will give us wisdom. But the one who asks had better not doubt. In other words, if we're going to ask God for something, we need to believe that he's going to grant that request. Because then James says, if you doubt, you're like a double-minded man, sort of like a guy with schizophrenia, okay? We're not focused, we're not thinking, we're doubting. And finally, the third problem is persistence. Jesus actually told a parable to illustrate this problem, saying that we need to always pray and not give up. In Luke 18, he told the parable of this poor widow who had virtually no power whatsoever and kept coming to a judge. Now, this was not a good judge. He was a bad judge. He didn't care about people. But this widow kept coming to him and demanding justice. And finally, the judge says to himself, I'm going to see this woman gets justice because if I don't, she's going to end up beating me up. Now, God is not an unjust judge, far from it. But the Lord's point was simply this. We need to be persistent when it comes to praying. The Lord says elsewhere, the scripture says elsewhere, will not the judge of all the earth do right? But the deal is, are we going to be persistent enough and faithful enough to keep those requests coming to the Lord? And in his own time, in his own way, he will grant and he will meet those needs. So, that's some common struggles we have with praying. Then we come to this beautiful passage of Scripture. Now, the answer to all of those prayer struggles is reflecting upon what Paul is praying here. So let's take a moment and read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. This is Paul's prayer to, uh, regarding the Ephesian Christians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and, how, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that's a lot. But the focus of his prayer is this, that we as Christians would know and rely on God's infinite power provided through Christ, available through his Holy Spirit. If you boil the prayer down, that's what he's dealing with. Now, for our purpose, let's split this prayer into three sections, okay? Verses 15 and 16, the first two verses, that's Paul's thanksgiving. And we don't want to ignore that because there's some important things that he mentions there. Then verses 17 and 18, this is where Paul gives his first request, and that is that we as Christians would receive enlightenment and knowledge. Two key words in that request. And then verses 19 to 23, this is where Paul gives a second request, And the second request is that we as Christians would experience God's power. All right, let's take a look at his thanksgiving first of all. So again, look at verses 15 and 16 with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, we're going to stop there. First thing. We need to have an attitude of gratitude in our prayers. It will transform our prayers. Sometimes we get so focused upon our needs because that is what is pressing upon us, whether it's the needs of a loved one, a family member, a job, a personal problem. We focus on our needs and we never pause to remember all the good things the Lord has already done for us. So, Psalm 118, verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfastness endures forever. Psalm 69, 30. I will praise the name of the Lord, David says, with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Now, it's interesting. In every letter except one that Paul sent to one of the churches that he helped to start, every letter except this one, he always finds something to be thankful about, even in the case, for example, of the Corinthians. And they were a messed up church. But nevertheless, Paul found something to be thankful for. You know what's the one exception? Galatians. And the reason why Paul was not thankful for something involving the Galatians when he dictated that letter is because when you read Galatians chapter 1, those people were seriously considering turning their back on the gospel. 
And as far as Paul was concerned, that's nothing to be thankful about. But in every other letter, he found something good that these people were doing in their walk with the Lord. Now notice the opening phrase, for this reason. Paul's looking back as Nathan was reading to us from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. All those spiritual blessings that we have in Christ that we spent five, six weeks examining last year. He's looking back on all those blessings and he says, for this reason, we need to remember, we need to be thankful. Now it's interesting, if you follow this phrase in your Bibles, go over to chapter three, verse one, and you'll read there again, if you have the ESV translation, for this reason. And then if you go over to chapter three, verse 14, you'll see it again, for this reason. What's happening? What's happening is Paul's doing what he so often does when he dictates these letters, rabbit trails. Paul starts off with a thought, carries it through, and then he pauses and he prays. And then he continues his thought and then he pauses and he prays. And then he continues his thought and then he pauses and he prays. Now, there's something here, a pattern here that we need to catch, and here it is. Paul is reflecting and teaching the people in his congregations the only way he can, dictating this letter as he is chained to a Roman soldier in Rome, sending this letter back by one of his disciples back to the Ephesian Christians. So he is teaching them, he is reflecting upon God as he's teaching them, and that leads naturally to Paul then praying. And then he reflects some more, and then that leads naturally again to Paul praying. What's going on? Simply this. Effective praying is a response to God's truth. If you're wondering how come your prayers seem to be so powerless, I would ask you this. How much time are you spending in the presence of God? How much time are we spending worshiping God as our praise band just led us in in worship to God? How much time are we spending studying God, spending time in his word, Reflecting upon the precious truths of Scripture. Because if we don't have an understanding of God's truth growing within us, no, we're not going to have powerful praying. And notice Paul says, I do not cease remembering you. Jewish people in Paul's time prayed three times a day. We know this from Psalm 55, verse 17, as well as how Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. They prayed in the morning, they prayed at noon, they prayed in the evening. Most likely, Paul would have done this. But Paul also would have prayed other times too. He would pray as he worked, making tents, making other objects. He would have prayed as he traveled, walking, most likely sailing sometimes from one place to another. It's interesting, there's a book, it's been out for actually over 300 years now. 
It's called Practicing the Presence of God. And the author of this book, he's best known by the name he took when he became a monk, Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence had been a soldier. And then God got a hold of this man in middle age. He gave up his violent ways. He became a monk and he went to a monastery and he adopted this name, but Lawrence didn't have much of an education. All he knew how to do was to fight before God saved him. So they told him, the only thing we need you to do, Lawrence, we need somebody to help out in the kitchen. So Lawrence, for the next 20, 30 years until God called him home, he scrubbed pots and pans. He prepared food in the kitchen. But as he would do those things, all the time he was praying. Now try that sometime next time you have Thanksgiving feast and somebody leaves a really messy pot. As you're scrubbing, pray, okay? That's what Lawrence did. And eventually somebody decided we need to interview him, we need to talk to him and find out what he was doing and that's why this little book was written that you can read actually in an afternoon, if even that, practicing the presence of God. The point is this, pray at set times and whenever the Lord prompts you. That's where quiet times, devotions, whatever you want to call them, those can be helpful. But besides those, sometimes we also need to do those, you probably have heard this phrase, arrow prayers. You know, somebody asks you a question and you really don't have the answer, and so before you open your mouth, you do a wise thing. You think to your heart, Lord, help me. That's an arrow prayer. But we also need to have those set times that we're before the Lord as well. All right, let's go on. Let's take a look at Paul's first request, verses 17 and 18. Again, what he's focused on here is that we, the Christians, would receive enlightenment and knowledge. That's the two key words, so let's read. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he's called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I like the ESV translation here because it indicates that all three members of the Trinity are involved in our praying. You have God the Father, the Father of glory, you have God the Son being the focus of the Father, and you have God the Holy Spirit being asked to give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God the Son. They're all involved. Now, if you read this chapter through, you, sometimes people wonder this. Just a few verses earlier, in verses 13 and 14, Paul had talked about how we have the Holy Spirit living within us. He says the Holy Spirit He's promised we are sealed in the Spirit, meaning that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is proof that we are indeed children of God. So then how can Paul, a few verses later, then say, oh, by the way, I'm praying for you that you would have the Spirit. Here's what's going on. He's praying that we would have more of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
We use the phrase filled with the Spirit. That's what he's praying. It's interesting when you get to the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, there's a passage there where after the Lord has been resurrected and he's talking to his disciples in that upper room and he tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. So evidently the Spirit came upon them at that time. But then about 50 or 40, 50 days later, the day of Pentecost, the Lord has gone back to the Father. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Christians in that upper room, some 120 of them. They are filled with the Spirit. And then Peter preaches that powerful sermon in Acts chapter 2, and the church is off. And then, a few months later, when they've been told by the Jewish religious leaders, stop telling people about Jesus. The Christians gather together, they begin to pray, and we're told that the house was shaken, and once more the Spirit descended upon them and filled them. That's the idea that Paul has, all right? That we would experience the presence of the Spirit to a greater degree in our walks with the Lord. Now, notice he says that we may be enlightened. He, the other word he says, that we may know. Two verbs, enlightened, know. In the Greek language, when Paul dictated this, both of those verbs are in what's called the perfect tense. Here's what that means. The idea is something happens and then you have the ongoing effect of what happened. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm praying that you guys will be enlightened, not just once, but that you continue to experience this enlightenment. He's saying, I'm not just praying that you know here, but that you continue to know and to grow in that knowledge. It's meant to be an ongoing thing. He says that the eyes of their heart, that's Paul's own phrase. That little phrase doesn't exist in the Greek language before Paul's time. He's the guy that invented it. That the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. Guys, who's the light of the world? Jesus, right? Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. If we're going to be enlightened, we're going to see Jesus better, aren't we? It's interesting, John, in John chapter 1, verse 5, talking about Jesus, John wrote, the light, that's Jesus, shines in the darkness, spiritual darkness, and the darkness has never overcome it. That word, overcome, there's not one English word that captures what John wrote. It can be translated, extinguish. The darkness will never extinguish or quench Jesus' light. It can be translated, understand. The spiritual dark world will never understand Jesus. But we will. Why? Because our eyes have been enlightened. 
How many of you guys have ever driven, say, down 7th Standard Road about 8, 9 o'clock at night? How many? Okay, I see a few hands. That's usually the way that my family and I come back when we're coming back from the coast, because I don't like driving Highway 166. I just don't. So we take the 46, I-5, and then 7th Standard. The nice thing about going down 7th Standard Road at night is there's not a lot of traffic. And I get to do something that I don't normally get to do. I get to start switch on the brights. I love that. You know, just reach over, click, and all of a sudden I don't see just maybe a quarter mile. I could see a mile down the road and tell some chuckleheads coming this way also having their brights on. And I have to turn it off again. When we know Jesus, it's a growing relationship. The enlightenment that we initially receive in Jesus can grow. What Paul is praying is that we would turn the brights on, that we would experience a greater knowledge of Jesus. And speaking of knowing, that other key word, knowing, Paul is asking for two things. If you look again at verses 17 and 18, first of all, he's saying that we would know the hope of our calling. If you're a Christian, it's because God called you into his kingdom. Now, obviously, you had to make a decision for the Lord. Scripture is clear that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But at the same time, Scripture is also clear that he calls us to his kingdom. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, that calling to become a Christian, it's part of the whole spiritual process where God is transforming us. And the cool thing is this. We are called to salvation, and we experience salvation. But you know what, folks? We ain't seen nothing yet. Because what we initially have when we get saved, it's only going to grow and deepen through this life as we walk with Jesus. And then we step into eternity and we'll spend eternity knowing the hope of our calling. Also, he says, may we know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the Old Testament, God's inheritance was Israel. His whole plan of salvation revolved almost entirely around Israel. They were his chosen ones. They were his heritage. In the New Testament, it's the church. The church is Christ's precious inheritance. In other words, it's us. And Paul is praying that we'll come to understand more fully what it means to be included within the plan of God. I love how Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2.9. But you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all titles, by the way, that were originally for Israel, but now it's also for his new people, the church. A people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our heritage, folks. That's who we are. I like how, what Clint Arnold wrote, and this, he's one of my old professors from Talbot, and because he's from Shafter, this has to be true. 
As an earthly king values treasures full of silver and gold, God values his people as his wealth and honor. Now, you may not feel very valuable. I know I don't at times. That does not change the reality of this at all. So, our prayers are never greater than our spiritual knowledge. Again, if we want to pray in a powerful way, we have to grow in our understanding of Christ. It's interesting. It always circles back to Christ. It always circles back to the gospel. Yeah, we were initially saved through the gospel, but guess what, folks? The way that we grow in our spiritual walk is that we have a deeper understanding of the gospel. We have a deeper understanding of what Jesus did for us. That's why we need enlightenment. That's why we need knowledge. Paul later writes in one of his other letters, in him, in Jesus, are hidden all of the treasures of knowledge. Enlightenment, it's all in him. Now Paul's second request, moving on, verses 19 to 23, is that we would experience God's power. So let's take a look at those verses. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and, e and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Paul here gives two examples of the Lord's awesome power. The first is Christ. How Christ was exalted. Literally from the grave to glory. Paul does this elsewhere in his letters. For example, in Philippians, I'll let you look at this on your own, but in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul there is telling the Philippian Christians, you guys need to have the same attitude as what was true about Christ. He didn't hold on to his divine prerogatives as God. He set those aside, meaning he was still God, but he set aside the voluntary exercise of his divine attributes, he humbled himself, became a man, he humbled himself even to dying a humiliating death on the cross for us, and therefore God his Father exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Now, Paul laid all that for the Philippian Christians because he said, you guys need to understand something about humility. Because although the Philippian Christians dearly loved Paul, they didn't love each other. And so he said, you need, you need an example of humility, of servanthood. Here it is, Jesus. Now in the case of the Ephesians, it's different. The Ephesians need an example, a great example of God's power. So again, the example is Jesus. 
The demonstration of God's power is Jesus. As Peter O'Brien, one writer wrote, he says this, the power with which God works in the lives of believers is the same might by which he raised Christ from the dead to share his throne. And you gotta think about that for a second. Now, when I used to teach high school history, and I would get to World War II, and I would talk at some point about the atomic bomb that was dropped on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I would tell my students to do this. I'd say, look guys, I want you to understand how big was the part of this bomb called Little Boy that blew up over Hiroshima, several hundred feet in the air. And I would tell them, take your hands and just touch your fingers together and create a space about that big, about the size of a grapefruit. And then I would tell them, Within that seven and a half ton bomb, little boy, was this much material enriched, enriched uranium, weighed about two pounds, that was detonated. That little bit of material wiped out an area the equivalent of central Bakersfield. In the case of Hiroshima, it killed 70,000 plus people instantly. That little bit compared with the awesome, enormous power that God exhibited when he raised up Christ. You see, we get so focused upon our issues, upon our troubles, that we forget who we are speaking to when we pray, and how much power he really has. Go with me over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, we want to take a quick look. Isaiah 51 at verses 12 and 13. This is the Lord speaking to Israel, okay? But there's something here that we can catch as well. I... Again, it's the Lord. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy and where is the wrath of the oppressor? In other words, the Lord was telling Israel, you guys are so focused upon Assyria, upon Babylon, and later upon Persia. He said, you're so focused on your problems, you're no longer focused on me. And we can make that same mistake. That's why we need to focus upon the kind of power that is available to us as Christians that God exhibited when the Father lifted up and raised his Son. Notice, he raised him, Paul also says, he seated him at his right hand. That's a position of highest honor. It's a position of having completed his mission which Jesus did on the cross. That's why he said from the cross, it 
is finished. The mission was done. He ascended back to his father, where right now, according to places like Hebrews 7.25, he intercedes for us, he prays for us constantly before his father. And notice too, Jesus was raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's the reason why when he came to his disciples after his resurrection, just before the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, he says this, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now, we've got to pause on that for a second. Because the early Christians... They had a lot of spiritual hangups, just as people do today. And one of the hangups the early Christians had was spiritual bondage. Demon possession, spiritual bondage were real things in the ancient world. That's one reason why, in the case of the Ephesian Christians, several years earlier, when they finally got serious about walking with God, they took all of these occult books, all of these magic scrolls that they had invested in, and they piled them up, 40,000 drachmas, a drachma was one day's wage, so 40,000 days' wages, and they put a torch to the whole bunch, signaling basically that they were going to trust Jesus alone, that he was going to deliver them from whatever they needed delivering from. That's why Paul later wrote to the Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Some Bibles say in the cross. John writes this, and you who are from God, little children, and have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Don't forget that. The second example of God's power is the church. It's the last two verses. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. In other words, Christ is the head. He's the ruler. He's the head and the ruler over all of creation. He's also the head of the church, his spiritual body. That's why Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might have the preeminence. Now notice too, Paul said, the fullness is in Jesus. That means we, the church, we're in Christ, aren't we? As Paul said during his earlier listing of spiritual blessings in verses 3 to 14, four times he said, we're in him, in him, in him, in him. Verses 4, 7, 10, 13. Our connection to Jesus is what makes us effective to serve him. And we better never forget that. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
It is he that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do what? Remember that. We need to. So, a powerful praying says fixed upon Jesus, our almighty Savior and Lord. We stay stuck on him. That's what we have to do. Do you remember when Jesus was walking on the water and the disciples said, it's a ghost! And they were terrified. And the Lord said, take courage, it is I. This is from John chapter 14, verse 22 to 33. Peter says, if it is you, Lord, call me to come out and walk towards you. And Peter began to walk. Now give Peter credit. The other 11 disciples were, but Peter was walking. And then he began to not focus upon God's power in Christ. He was starting to look at those 20-foot high waves that the Sea of Galilee can generate and the wind that was whipping his hair. And when he started looking elsewhere, he started to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and lifted him up, and he said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? If we take our eyes off Jesus, we're not going to be effective prayer warriors. We have to, powerful praying stays fixed upon Jesus, our almighty Savior and Lord. Okay, final applications. Three facts about powerhouse praying that we can see in this passage. Number one, it begins with gratitude and thankfulness. Don't forget to be grateful and to look to see what God has already done. Number two, it seeks to know Jesus better, enlightenment and knowledge. And number three, it focuses upon God's power in Christ. Now, we're going to close the service up momentarily, but I would like to invite people. First of all, you don't have to come forward to do this, but I would still invite you to seriously focus upon how well are you doing in your praying. If you're not doing real great, maybe you need to spend some time in this passage on your own. A spiritual tune-up. Maybe you'd like to come forward and pray with one of us because you're struggling with some things and we're available to pray with folks as well. We'll have some people down here in the front, our spiritual leaders from this service. But you act as the Lord leads. God bless you.